Back on Smith and Jones, Derek Smith, Paul Jones with you. Jonesy, I'm going to uh, hit you with something right off the bat here, right off the top of the second hour here. Uh, Rick Barry, member of the NBA 75th anniversary team, he was scheduled to join us yesterday. Uh, we're going to hope to have him on the show today. Uh, he texted us after the show yesterday, he texted our producer Mark Boffo and was apologetic and uh, certainly hoping to chat with Rick Barry uh, this afternoon, or I should say, excuse me, this morning, and uh, Ian O'Connor. Uh, New York Post columnist will join us as well. Uh, but I want to hit you with this. I saw this earlier, and, and I, I got to scratch in my head. I'm putting you on the spot here. Go with your gut, Jonesy. Go with your gut, all right? This was a survey that was conducted by Slam Studios, affiliated with Slam Magazine. And it was a survey conducted from Reddit users. Folks, of course, you know the website Reddit. Mm-hmm. Each fan base's most hated player. Now, I'm not going to go through every single team in the league. Based on this survey of Reddit users, who is the most hated player by the Raptors fan base? Just to give you a sense, like, uh, uh, allegedly, according to this, um, the Los Angeles Lakers fan base most hated player is Grayson Allen. Milwaukee Bucks fan base, most hated player, James Harden. Minnesota, Jimmy Butler. Boston, Kyrie Irving. Brooklyn, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Sacramento, LeBron James. So I gave you five or six right there. I'm not reading the entire league. Who is the most hated player, according to this survey from Reddit users done by Slam Studios, who's the most hated player for the Toronto Raptors fan base? Uh, in terms of, and so we're not talking history. Some of those had some historical context to them. A guy, like I, I detected a bit of a pattern on former teams or a guy who had said something against uh, like the current team and and kind of the villain. I, well, um, there is there is a little bit of history here because I'll give I you would, a little bit more. I have no idea why, okay. unless I'm forgetting something. Washington's most hated player is Kelly Olynyk. Dallas's most hated player is Rajon Rondo, and LeBron James okay. pops up on a whole bunch of teams. Yeah. Now, there's yeah. Patrick Beverly, Oklahoma City, Patrick Beverly, Phoenix, and no doubt about this one, and it's recent, but somehow he vaulted the ranks to be number one, Trey Young for the New York <laughs> Knicks. But So there is some history with some. There's recency with others. So... <laughs> All right. If I had to say Toronto, most hated player, I would go with Joel Embiid. Okay. Now, I would have said, because as much as there's respect, because he's you know, either one or two, depending on which side of the argument you land on, he's two for me, because, of course, MJ's number one. I would have said LeBron James. I mean, he... He, yeah. he he slapped yeah. you down time and time and time again in the postseason. So as much as you respect him and like him as a superstar and as a flag bearer for the league, I would have thought he's number one. The guy on this list, I don't even know if I would have had him in my top five. And, like, I don't even know if it would come to mind. Because after LeBron, and, and, and you gave out a good one too, no doubt, Joel Embiid, I probably would have started thinking about former Raptor players that left. Because <laughs> that's that's that to what me I started. Seems to like that's what I started. Where more with. of the hatred comes, right? 
Yeah, that's where that's what I started with. Uh, you know, until they mended the fence, I would have said Vince Carter. You know, right. like I, 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 but I just thought recently Embiid and the 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 playoff series, and I mean, I don't think they, I don't think they hated anybody with Milwaukee when the Raptors, the year that the Raptors won, or hated anybody with Golden State. Um, so I just I went back Joel Embiid, but yeah I could, I could see it being LeBron. What what who was it? Give me the you're killing me here. Well, he is the most hated player allegedly according to the Reddit users for two teams, one being the Toronto Raptors, the other being the Boston Celtics. Kyrie Irving. Interesting. I don't, I don't, like, listen, I don't know if it speaks to the, the average age of the Reddit users. I don't know if it's young or old or if it's right in the middle. I don't know if they surveyed four people and, and then did the math and projected that out over 40,000 or 4 million. But Kyrie Irving, really? I, like, I, I, I don't even I, think I, I got, put him in my top five. I got one for you. Our old friend, uh, head coach Dave Diavero, he texted me, he just hit me on the text line. You know, Eric, you know, you know uh, White Lightning, Davey D from from your oh, okay, absolutely at, at Humber College. He texted in most hated for the Raptor fans, Paul Pierce. Excellent choice. In fact, I was about that would have been say, a good Paul one. Pierce. Yes, yes, that was a good absolutely. one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if he would climb the ranks to be high enough to be even in the top five, but but. Kevin Garnett might even be there. Like, think about KG with Minnesota. And we just talked to Matt Bonner, what, last week or two weeks ago about the, the dust-up with, with KG and the wrestling match back in the day. But also, KG, uh, whether it be with Brooklyn, and more so with even the Celtics, like, even in Boston. Jonesy, how many times have we joked about seeing KG dancing along with Gino up on the big board in Boston because oh. the Celtics are torching Toronto in the fourth quarter up by 20-plus points or something, and there's KG dancing on the sidelines. But Paul Pierce is an I excellent choice. Because not just, not just Boston, but he heck, he did it with Brooklyn, and he, like, the block shot at the buzzer well, on, on, on Kyle Lowry, and then, of course, doing it with Washington as well. Like, the truth was coming after the Raptors. He'd absolutely be up there. That's a great one. Kyrie Irving? I don't get it. And by the way, and by the way, like his nickname, The Truth, okay, I'll come out and I w- it may not be popular, but that's a secondhand borrowed nickname. Right. The first guy that I got, the first guy in from my era that was called The Truth was a guy named Walter Berry for St. John's. And Walter, as we always say, they, they had a couple of those guys, E. Uh, Walter Berry and David Russell, they had two directions, left an extreme left. He like you. He was a left-handed bandit. You could have put that right arm in a cast because he was not using it. And he was the guy that they nicknamed back in probably 84, 85. They nicknamed him the truth. And somebody said, why is the truth? Because his game doesn't lie. So Paul Pierce, I like the nickname, but it's kind of a borrowed nickname. You know, like I... But yeah, I, I could see where he he would be on the Raptors list. I uh, good call, Coach D. Good call. I would be more willing to bet, or well, maybe not bet. I'd be more willing to listen to people even saying that they hated Jamal Crawford over Kyrie Irving. 
Jamal Crawford threw up how many 50-point games on the Raptors and continued to torch this team time and time again anytime he was in this building. Anyways, I digress. I digress. It's I, a sign I of respect, it. D. I guess so. I guess so. It's, it's, it's the ultimate sign of respect, I suppose. You're right about that. Uh, speaking of respect, uh, we are pleased to bring on to the show and uh, chat with one of the greatest of all time, on the 75th anniversary team for the NBA as well and part of the outstanding festivities this past weekend as well uh, during All-Star Weekend in Cleveland. Uh, Joining us on the line right now, Hall of Famer Rick Barry. Rick, thanks for the time today. Happy to join you guys. I have a lot of good memories of Canada having worked for uh, television up there and doing the Vancouver when they were playing in Toronto and spending, although I would have to say it was some chilly winter weekends though for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, hey rick uh did you did you have a place where you went into where we were just talking about each fan bases before we get to the the all-star thing and i know you were a guy that when i watched you play at times you kind of you kind of uh, would wink and you didn't mind being that villain on the road did you have a place that you went into a gym an arena a place that you went into on the road and you said you know what i know it's your gym but i own this place well, to be honest with you, I'd love playing on the road uh, more than at home. Um, the reason being is that I knew that I had a chance to spoil the night for a lot of people, thousands of people. <laughs> and you, and here's the thing is that you don't get booed if you aren't any good. So, I mean, seriously, I mean, that's the case. And so I I, I used to enjoy doing that. Uh, I tell you, the, the one place that was interesting is that where they, the fans really appreciated when you played really well is New York. Uh, in New York, they respected you if you played well. You know, they might boo you were doing something, but they <laughs> sometimes even wind up cheering for you. It was very interesting. And then the guys were, hey, Rick, how are you feeling today doing it? Because I, I learned later on that, you know, some guys were betting on how many points you get in the first quarter and the second quarter. I mean, it was crazy. They would bet on anything back there. So uh, it was an interesting scenario to go and, and play in some of the various arenas. And then, of course, some of the arenas had their own hecklers, they're individual hecklers, and you know they had Washington had their own back there where they played when they were the Washington Bullets, and you remember some of those people. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of good stories, a lot of great memories. It was a it's a great career. I just they just forgot three zeros on my contracts. That's all. <laughs> Hey, hey, Rick, I, I won't take credit for this. It's often Jonesy that says this, but I've kind of gotten in line with him over the years, speaking about the, the, the zeros missing. Give we me look the at points. The contracts. Yeah, exactly. We look at the contracts these days, and Rick, you know, he see 8.7 and 6.4 and, and whatever, you know, 3.7. Hey, just give me the point. You can take the 3 million, Rick. Just give me the point seven. I'll take 700 grand. I'm, I'm good with that right now. Um, well, people ask how, how I'm feeling. I say I'm feeling great. If I was any better at making a comeback in the NBA, and I'd play for the average salary, which is probably three or four times more than I ever made. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is absolutely wow. crazy. Uh, Rick, you know what? Speaking of playing, though, we're, obviously we've got lots of NBA stuff we want to ask you about and, and, and get some of your, your thoughts of, of the weekend as well. Again, outstanding ceremony. But I do want to quickly just mention, I didn't see this story until our producer passed it along this morning, and I, I quickly watched the video. I read the story that Mark Stein had as well. You are still playing not making the comeback in the NBA, though, but you are dominating the pickleball circuit. How how did this start for you, and where did the, the love of pickleball and the, the competitive juices for that start? Like, How did this all come about for you? Well, first of all, when I when I stopped playing, obviously I missed playing basketball, but I mean, I, I missed the competitiveness. I'm, I just love to compete. 
I love to go out there. And, and when you do that in front, especially if you're in front of people, you're, you're putting yourself on the line for possible failure and embarrassing yourself. And I hate to be embarrassed. So I had to find something else. And what I first found, though, actually was uh, I started playing a lot of tennis, but tennis started beating my body up a lot. And I would play in a lot of exhibitions. I played with some great people. I mean, you know, Sampers and Connors and McEnroe and all kinds of guys and women as well, you know, Chrissy Everett and Martina. And, and so that was kind of fun. But then it was getting hard on my body and I found long driving in golf and I did that and I won four world long driving championships in my age division. But then they stopped the old guys, they got rid of the old farts. And so I couldn't do that anymore. And then my wife said, Hey, you ought to try pickleball. And so I went out and I tried it and I just fell in love with it because you can have great competition and you can get a great workout and you don't really beat your body up that much. And so my goal was when I started, this is my fourth year of playing, my goal was to try to win some national titles. And I won two U.S. Opens in the mixed and men's doubles. And then I won two two national titles in mixed and doubles. And I won two uh, world senior events in men's doubles. I didn't have a woman to play with. I wish I I found one afterwards. But I won two with a guy, just a great, uh, great guy, Ted Meyer. He's a former national champion from the villages in Florida. We won two gold medals in the 60 to 69 and six and 70 to 74, which means I'm basically playing with younger people all the time, but it still was incredible fun. Wow. That's that Rick, uh, and <laughs> competitive and, and it just, you never lose those, those competitive juices. Uh, here's the last thing I want to ask you, Rick, and I've been taking my own, Eric and I, our own straw poll with people all the way through. I don't know if you saw the Juwan Howard incident, how do you feel? Yes, how did. did you feel about? The, how did you feel about a handshake line? Pa, Mark Price was talking about doing away with it. Like, where do you stand on that after a really? Uh, and, and Rick, I, I, again, Eric isn't, and I'm, I hate to date him, but I was old enough to. I'm old enough to have watched you played in your prime. You know, like take down the bullets in that championship, and you know, just some of your ex, your now past teammates uh, were guys that inspired me. I was a huge fan of Phil Smith. Um, but but you're, you get into those competitive environments, Rick, and talk to me about the end of the game and the handshake and what you think about it. Well, they don't really do that in the NBA. I mean, uh, they do it in college, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. In fact, I saw an interview from Tom Izzo, who I reached out to and told him I agreed 100%. I think it's ludicrous to go ahead and say you're going to go ahead and throw that out the window. Um, you, you have to have respect for your opponent. You go out there, you play as hard as you can to try to beat them as badly as you can, but afterwards you shake hands, say, hey, nice game, with nice going. Um, you know, I think Juwan is, uh, I'm sure he, has, he regrets what he did. It was uh, it was inexcusable on his part to do that, um, you know, getting a big suspension as a result of it. We don't need that type of stuff in sports. I mean, you, you compete on the field, on the court, wherever it may be, but once you get done with it, you should have mutual respect for your opponents. And even if somebody does something that's way out of line, you still don't go out there and you don't start throwing slaps and punches and things of that nature. That's just inexcusable and uncalled for. Speaking with Rick Barry, Hall of Famer, and uh, on the NBA's uh, 75th anniversary team as well, honored this past weekend. Rick, I wanted to ask you about that. I've, I've referenced it a couple of times. Uh, you know, it was an incredible ceremony. I was sitting there watching it on the weekend and just reminiscing and, and seeing all the, 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 great, the greats coming out uh, onto the stage and whatnot. Was there a moment or two that stood out for you being part of it? Because it was cool, I know, for us as fans to watch – 
Michael come out and, and, and see and embrace, you know, Dennis Rodman or to see, you know, Ray Allen finally reunite and maybe bury the hatchet that's been there with, with Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and just seeing everybody together like that. Was, was, was there a couple of moments that stood out for you just being in it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's certainly an honor to be included in, in the best of your profession. I mean, you, you don't play for that honor. You play to win championships, at least I did. I mean, the only ring I ever wear is my championship ring. Um, and I have a Hall of Fame ring in you know, the top 50. But, yeah, it was special in that regard. I'm going to say something else after I get done, but I'll answer your question first. Um, to me, I think I was one of the oldest guys there. I mean, Bob Pettit is older. Bob Pettit is 89. I think Billy Cunningham's one year older than me. But I don't think there were too many guys that were there that were older than I am. And I was kind of like a, a young kid. I, I was the only one that did it. I had a, a white, nice placard thing to do. I got the autograph of every person that was there on that on that little square thing so that I could have that when I get the picture and frame that along with the picture that they took of all of the players who were, who were there. Unfortunately, Michael didn't make it for the photograph. He just showed up for the game and Dennis Rodman wasn't there for the picture either, but, and and, you know, and other guys didn't make it for various reasons, but you know, the photo is the photo and I've got autographs of everybody in that photo. Now it's probably the only one of its kind. And, and that's kind of cool. And so I, I, I admire greatness in everything in life have great respect and admiration for people who are great at what they do. And here I was with, you know, 50 some out of the guys that were there who were the greatest in the history of the game of basketball that were, you know, still alive. So that was special, very special. And they did a really nice job with it. And uh, I just wish that Jeff Hamilton, who does those amazing leather jackets, gave us one for the top 50, had gone and remeasured everybody because you change a little bit. I've shrunk, you know. <laughs> I'm, not as, I'm not as tall as I used to be and everything, and the sleeves are long. I mean, but it's such a beautiful jacket, and it was so nice of the NBA to do what they did for us. Uh, well, here's the thing uh, I wanted to bring up. When the, most you... of, most of the best part for me, okay. the best part, I have to say, the best part for me, was being the honorary coach and being on there and getting our team and Team Barry for the Rising Stars Challenge to get our guys to play basketball. I said, guys, make the all-star team next year and go out and have fun and put on a show. Tonight, please, let's go out and play real basketball and show these people that you know how to play this game the right way. And that my, you know, my team did that, and I was really proud of them. I'm very impressed with Keith Cunningham. He did a terrific job, and I didn't do the coaching. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Brian did the coaching from the from the from the uh, Suns, who was the assistant coach for them, and his rest of the staff. They did a great job getting these guys prepared, having to practice, whatever. And I just said to Kate in the, in the game for twenty five for the championship, I said, "Listen, you need to take this game over right now. You get that ball, you control the game, put the ball in the hands of the right people, and make the right decisions to win this basketball game." And he did that. He got MVP, and, and he deserved it. Rick, and, and that's kind of where I was going. Um, you know, you played in all-star games, and uh, you knew it was kind of for the fans, and it was an exhibition, quote-unquote, in some senses. But it just seemed like, and maybe it's the, the, the proliferation of AAU and these guys knowing each other and all of the summer all-star games and where there is no defense and it's a show. I, I They've tried to make it more competitive. But in your day, as much showmanship as there was, the game was really competitive. Is there any way we can get back to something that's close to that in, in future All-Star games? Now, let's, let's get this straight, okay, so everybody understands. Stop calling it the All-Star game. It's the All-Star exhibition. The not exhibition when we played. There was no exhibition. There was no showmanship. That was a serious, serious 
competitive basketball game back when I played with great pride on the line, wanting to win. I mean, hell, the winning team got money. It was one-fifth of my salary, for God's sake. You know, the money means nothing to these guys now. And now it's turned into, and I think, you know, it's just a showtime. And, and, and if you want to go with that in mind, I mean, come on, Steph Curry put on a hell of a show, didn't he? Yes, unbelievable. And the yeah. things that these guys do during the course of the game, it's unbelievable. But it's not even anything resembling a competitive basketball game. If the game is close at the end and doing something, they'll play hard maybe to try to win at the end. But it is not a game. So let's throw that out of the equation. They shouldn't even call it the All-Star game. It's All-Star weekend. And Sunday is the All-Star celebration, the All-Star exhibition and entertainment. That's what it is. That's exactly what it is, and that's all that it is. And they should take everything back when it started and anybody and forget it and just keep records up to the point where the game was still serious and then keep records for all this stuff that's taking place now. Because I can assure you that, you know, you're not going to have somebody being able to do what they did, the records that they had, the points that they scored. That wasn't going to happen back in those days. I think I had the record or close to some with 38 points or something in the All-Star game. But I guarantee you that, that was tough. I mean, we played. I mean, I had a front line of Jerry Lucas, Will Chamberlain, and Bill Russell in that game. Somebody just sent me a photograph, and in the photograph, there's, there's six players. Five of the players are Hall of Famers and top 50 players. It was an amazing array of 1967 of players on those teams. But we played and we competed. I mean, hell, you're talking about competing. I fouled out as a rookie. I fouled out my first All-Star game as a rookie. I fouled out. We were trying to play defense. <laughs> and one of them, they called an offensive foul. They called an offensive foul on me. They said, you warded off Chamberlain. I said, are you out of your mind? I said, I could be on the floor and have two hands, and I couldn't ward Chamberlain off. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if you remember this play then, Rick, but I, I'm going to assume you, you must have at least, at least liked one play. In the, I, I won't call it a game then. We'll call it the, the, the spectacle, the showdown, the, the whatever. You must have loved a couple of years ago then when Kyle Lowry, who's still playing with the Raptors at that time, took a charge against his then-teammate, Kawhi Leonard, who was playing on the other side. Like, was, I'm assuming the last time we saw a charge drawn, taken in an All-Star game showdown was decades ago before it happened then. Yeah, there's, yeah, I mean, you don't see that happening. I mean, they just, you know, open up the floodgates. Guys come down the, down the lane hard. Everybody just moves aside, let them go and get their dunk and then grab the ball and run up the other end of the court. So, yeah, no, that was, that was kind of crazy that he did that. He had a momentary lapse of intelligence. <laughs> you just don't do that nowadays in the all-star games. It's just not the way that it's played. So it's, but it's, you know what I'm saying? Go with the right attitude, going with that. I mean, I said, yeah, I don't care. So I'm going, I'm saying, well, what incredible stuff am I going to see? You saw some amazing, hell, we saw better dunks in the all-star game than we saw in the in the dunking competition. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and Rick, uh, I mean, I, I think about some of the guys that played in your era, and there was no three-point shot. What it would have been like had the game been kind of this open because no i mean it's come to this because nobody the, the big man is kind of disappearing from the game in that sense and i think of what it would have been like to have that style of basketball back in those days it it could have been really really crazy with some of the some of the talent uh you know back in you know the 60s and 70s yeah, but I don't know if it would have been overused. I said sometimes it gets overused. Like, you know, too much of anything is not very good. And sometimes teams kill themselves. I remember the Warriors in that five-year run they have when they lost to Cleveland in the game seven back there. They lost because they did nothing but shoot three-point shots at the end of the game, and they cost them a championship. That's, that's when Draymond had gotten suspended in one of those games, which is another whole story you can get into, but I'm not going to do it now. 
But, uh, yeah, it, here's the thing is I got up to a 33% shooter shooting three-point shots. I never shot from that far out, never. I mean, unless the clock was running out. And so, uh, you know, 33, is that's fine. You know, that's 50% shooting from twos, which is, you know, which is really good. And so you, you've got to be a good three-point shooter. That's why I look at the rosters today when I'm looking at some of these teams. I'm saying, how in the world can they have guys who are wing players and play on the exterior who can't shoot? up in the 30 percentile from three-point range, you're a freaking liability. You've got to have guys you can shoot. I mean, some of the games are shooting 60, 70, three-point shots in one game. So, yeah, it's, it's become a totally different game. It does open things up a lot, but it doesn't mean that it can't be defended properly. You just have to understand how to do it and who you're playing against. And so you jump screens. You don't let guys go behind a screen and get a chance to get a shot. In fact, you go behind a screen, Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, they're going to get a shot off anytime. So will so many other players. So it's just a different way to have to defend. It used to be three things to do defensively to, to be able to compete. Limit the number of fast break opportunities for your opponent. Limit the number of offensive rebound baskets for them and make them beat you from the perimeter. Well, the Golden State Warriors just destroyed that third thing because not only could they beat you from the perimeter, they could embarrass you from the perimeter. So that's the biggest change in the game of basketball as far as how you approach a game with your defensive mindset. Now you have to have a different type of defense. and You can't let teams with good shooters get open shots. They have to be contested. Hey, Rick, uh, we're, we're up against it, but I wanted to ask you one more here because it kind of ties into a theme that we've been discussing uh, over the course of the show, something we often get into as well. Paul's a former educator as well, let alone uh, you know player and coach here in Canada. Um, we had Alvin Williams, the former Toronto Raptor, uh, on, and, and he's coaching a high school team in Philadelphia right now. As a father with, with, your, with your sons and as a student of the game, let alone a teacher of the game, um, you had an interesting quote, and I, I believe it was back in January, where you spoke about this reputation that you garnered over the years as, as you know, being a hard person maybe to get along with. I certainly haven't found that over the course of the last 20, 25 minutes. But you, you mentioned, and I'm paraphrasing, but one of, the coach, or one of the quotes excuse me, that you had was your wife saying about your honesty that you're brutally honest and taking the brutality out of it sometimes perhaps. How have you balanced over the years? And I'm asking this even as a father of a 12-year-old being honest and finding that fine line as a father, as a coach, as a friend, as a teammate, as a broadcaster, of knowing when you can kind of drop that hammer or when it needs to be dropped versus when you can take that brutality out of it a little bit and still be honest but maybe not as honest and, and walk in that fine line, as I say again, as coach, father, broadcaster, etc. How do you find that balance? Well, as you get older, you get a little wiser, uh, and my wife is been great for that and and i understood her position in doing it i'm still incredibly honest and at times brutally honest because sometimes brutality is necessary i mean you got to just tell people I and mean, this is bs and there's a lot of things that go on in life that you need to go ahead and be very strong in your opinion about it but yeah you, you have to be cautious of it of you know consider other people's feelings and things of that nature but i think you have to be honest i mean i think that's one of the things in life that honesty is missing a lot of people lie i mean shit politicians they lie it's a way of life for most of them it's just really kind of sad when you think about the lies that you're told let I me mean, just go over and look at the things that happen and you read in the newspaper and then all of a sudden later on you realize that what they said was totally different than what they're saying now and it's really sad so you know basically just be honest with people um always give your best effort in what you're doing give everybody if somebody's paying you money you owe them your best effort every time you go to you go to your to your work that's the beauty of playing basketball i didn't feel like i had a job like i worked hell i got to go do something i love to do and somebody was crazy enough to pay me you know and i just wish i didn't forget those three zeros again but you know that's what you do in life you, know, you give
give your best effort and be, and like I told people, I have this reputation, which is so, such a crock. I mean, I'm not a bad person. I know who I am as a person. My friends know who I am as a person. All I can tell anybody that says that about me and the guy that I really, I want to run into him again, because I haven't run into him since he wrote his book years and years ago, is that's Bill Simmons who called me a dick in his book. I mean, that's like unbelievable to me that a guy can do something like that who doesn't even know me. And it's just writing these things. And some of the things that were said were said in jest by Billy Paulson and Mike Dunn would be saying, funny, you know, Rick would start World War III if he went to the U.N. No, because of my honesty. And, you know, they don't talk honesty in those types of situations. I just said, if you had me as a friend, you'd be happy to have me as your friend. Rick, we, uh, we were happy to have you on today. We appreciated uh, you sharing some time with us and sharing some stories as well. And uh, look forward to maybe chatting with you again down the road. All the best. There is uh, Rick Barry, Hall of Famer, NBA champion, and uh, one of the 75 greatest of all time. And uh, hey, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm what, 30 years, 30 plus years younger than him. And if he's saying he can get out there and those are the products he uses to keep himself on the pickleball court and winning national titles and whatnot at 77, I'm hitting up those websites as soon as we get off the air. I was going to say, I was going to say, it, it, if, it, if it's going to help me walk the golf course a little stronger or, or exercise a little bit better. Uh, you know, I, I got a, a mother with 94-year-old knees, and she finds it difficult. Man, let, let's try it. You got nothing to lose. I hear you, man. <laughs> nothing to lose. Thanks again to Rick Barry for joining us. Make sure you subscribe to Smith & Jones. Wherever you get your podcast. please rate and review as well. We'll come back after the break with Ian O'Connor. We'll talk about Coach Krzyzewski and a whole lot more on Smith & Jones. Breaking down the biggest stories in Toronto sport. The Fan Morning Show with J.D., Blake, and Ailish. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back on Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Thanks again to Rick Barry for joining us. We uh, shift our attention, but not really. We're still staying in the basketball world, and we've been talking a lot about coaches today and coaching in general, whether it be at the professional or the uh, college ranks, and perhaps uh, a perfect segue to uh, bring on our next guest, uh, New York Post columnist and also author of the new book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski, Ian O'Connor, joining us. Ian, thanks for the time today. Thanks so much for having me on, but from uh, Rick Barry to me, that's a pretty big drop-off, but I appreciate <laughs> no, it. No, not, not at all. Hey, it's it's not a big drop-off because all I've been seeing is, is clips of you, Ian, making the rounds, whether it be on, on uh, you know, with, with, with Rich Eisen and uh, with Colin Coward, so we appreciate you carving out a little bit of time with us as well because you've been telling a lot of stories from the book, and I guess none seems to be making uh, more rounds, at least of late. It's it's kind of been catching on the last few days, the the story of LeBron James and Kobe Bryant and, and Coach K at the Olympics. I, I don't know if you – you've probably shared it a couple of times now, Ian, but maybe if you could tell our audience uh, sort of the behind the scenes of what you found out about the uh, incident that took place at the Olympic Games and, and, and LeBron maybe kind of being um, coached, in a sense, talked to, in a sense, that way for the first time. No, without a question, and I think there was tension in that relationship – going into the Beijing games of 2008. Remember, LeBron James was on the disastrous American team in 2004 in Athens under Larry Brown that, that fell apart on the world stage. And, and that led to the hiring of Mike Krzyzewski by, by Team USA. And, and that was a disaster. And then Coach K in 2006 with, with Team USA 
has an embarrassing loss at the World Championships in Tokyo, losing to Greece in the semifinals. And the Greeks, that team, they ran one play, a high pick and roll, and the U.S. could not defend it. It was really embarrassing. So, so LeBron really didn't buy in right away with the whole Coach K thing. And, and so there was a, a scene in the book. There are actually two scenes. One is before a meeting, Coach K asked him early on in Las Vegas to, to speak up in a team meeting to set a tone before Beijing. And the meeting went on for 45 minutes after LeBron agreed to do this. He never talked. And Coach K was extending the meeting, just waiting and waiting and waiting for LeBron James to finally speak to his teammates. And after 45 minutes, he, he finally did. And he talked about how, hey, we have, as NBA players, we've complained about not having stars on our team. Well, we have Jason Kidd in this room. We have Carmelo Anthony. We have Dwayne Wade. No excuses. We have to win the gold medal. So he went on for about two minutes. And Coach K, after LeBron was done, ended the meeting by saying, amen, brother. And so that was the beginning of them coming together. But the one scene I, I think you referred to, in their last prelim game in Shanghai against Australia, Kobe Bryant started taking some Lakers shots, some non-team-centric shots. And LeBron said to Coach K in that game, yo, Coach, you better fix that mother bleep. And so now Krzyzewski has to confront Kobe, the great Kobe Bryant on shot selection, which he did the following day. He took him into a side room. He opened his laptop. He showed Kobe about, I don't know, six to eight shots that he took that – and he just said to him, Kobe, you can do this with the Lakers. You can't take these shots with Team USA teammates like LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony and Jason Kidd. You just can't do that. And Kobe looked at him and said, okay, coach, it won't happen again. Hmm. And, and guess what? It never did. So it, it, was, it was a scene of LeBron holding Coach K accountable and then Coach K holding Kobe accountable. Wow. Uh, interesting, interesting. And, and, Ian, that speaks to what we always say that, Players want to be coached. They want to be given direction. They want to be uh, kind of given limits. And, and look, you know this in life. Leadership studies show the older you get, uh, you know, the, 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 the more you just want to be told what to do, right? We have, I don't know about you, but you have older parents, like too many options are not good. Okay, just do this or just do that. <laughs> and I, I, kind of get the, I kind of get the feeling it's the same way, even with the great players. They want direction. And that's, uh, I mean, how much could LeBron use some of that direction right now with what's going on with the Lakers? A good point. Good point. And I think his coach has maybe shown a little bit of weakness there in Los Angeles. But at Coach K, there were a couple of times where once in practice uh, leading into Beijing, LeBron, Coach K was giving him some instruction and LeBron turned his back on him. And he stopped him. He said, look me in the eye. You, when we communicate, we look each other in the eye. Do not turn your back on me. There was another scene where they're on a bus, uh, I believe in Beijing, going to a morning shoot-around practice. And, and LeBron was audibly complaining on the bus about the necessity of this practice session. And Coach K and, and everyone heard it. And so when the bus was parked and the players went inside the, the gym, Coach K pulled him aside and said, LeBron, we can't have that. Uh, you have to trust me that I'm not going to do anything that will hurt our chances of winning a gold medal. You need to buy in. So ultimately, it was, it was a process. It was a tough process. But LeBron got there with Coach K, and together they won two gold medals with Kobe, and then the second one being in London in 2012. And then without those two, Coach K won a third in Rio with Kevin Durant as his best player. 
Speaking with Ian O'Connor, uh, again, the, uh, the book that is out right now, if folks want to get it, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. Uh, Ian, listen, I, I, I'm going to preface this by saying, much like many people out there, I don't like Duke. I respect Duke, but I don't like Duke. I think there's no middle ground. You either love Duke or you hate Duke. And I'm one of those ones that hates Duke. But I have to respect, clearly, the legacy and the success of, of Coach K and of Duke, as much as I hate to admit it. you got to respect it. My question to you, though, is, and, and even in asking this, I know that there are exceptions to the rule. There have been many that have gone on to success and even gone on to stardom. But for the most part... Duke hasn't always produced the best NBA players. There have been some, but not as many as other schools. And there was always this question that some would ask about, like, well, why haven't they produced more stars or more impact players in the NBA? And then you start telling me these stories about the Olympic Games, and clearly it's got nothing to do with Coach K in terms of um, uh, not being able to coach star players. I think, is it fair to say that he's able to coach players but even does a better job of coaching and guiding and mentoring and leading young people and preparing them for the world not just for the sport i think that's very fair to say now i I will say this i'll add this i think coaching the olympic team changed him a little bit at duke being around the greatest players in the world, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, and company, uh, two things that Duke players told me when he came back, he seemed to be more player and user-friendly and and eased up on his approach with them a little bit. But also, that really inspired him to always want to coach the best players in the world at that particular level. So he then decides to embrace the one-and-done era of college basketball, which I thought he would never do. And he goes after John Wall, loses him to Kentucky. Then he, then he gets Kyrie Irving. Then Austin Rivers was considered a one-and-done player then. Then Jabari Parker. And then the 2015 team of Okafor, Winslow, and Jones, which were one-and-done players that won the national championship. So I, I think some of, the, some of the cases of Duke players not being good NBA players, it, it, there's a little bit of bad luck involved in that as well. Uh, Zion's injuries uh, right now out of the gate uh, are obviously derailing his career. Grant Hill would have been one of the 10 or 15 best players in NBA history without the injuries. And Bobby Hurley, I think, would have been a very good NBA point guard. He had the car accident early in his career in Sacramento that derailed him. And I never understood why Leitner wasn't a better NBA player to have that kind of skill at his size. That that one baffled me. R.J. Barrett, and I'm in New York, and I know there's some, some interest uh, in your neck of the woods in him. I, I actually think he's going to be a, a real star in the league. He's only 21, and I see him really coming on as as an NBA force in the coming years. So I think Duke will be able to take credit for him, even though he was only there one season. But but I see Barrett as a guy to watch in the next five years. Oh, wow. Uh, look, uh... I mean, you look at what's happening with Zion, and we were talking about that in, at the top, Ian, the fact that, um, you know, everybody couldn't wait to get Zion Williamson, and, you know, he's, he's, he's not available. He's, he's barely played, and, and that's been, I mean, that's been tough. Coach K's last year, and what's going on now? What do you think... Project down the road, Ian. Where does he go from here? What what does he does he ever come back to coaching? What what do you think the future holds for him? I don't think he'll ever come back. I just think at this point, I hate to say he's too old, but he's seventy five. 
So I, I don't see that. But what I do see, he's not a man with many hobbies. He doesn't play golf like Roy Williams does. He uh, he used to play a lot of tennis, but I think physically he's had all of his joints replaced, basically. I don't think he can do that much anymore. He's not a big reader. He does like to do a little gardening around his house, believe it or not. But I think he's going to be very involved in the Duke basketball program. He's keeping his office there on the sixth floor. John Shire, the next coach, is his protege. He's young. He's 34. So I think he's going to exert his influence and impose his will effectively on that Duke Blue Devil basketball program in the coming years. So I I think his plan is to still be not just an ambassador. I think he's going to be a factor. And, And when recruits are visiting campus, I think they will be brought to Coach K's office. I think he will be there occasionally in practices. I think he'll be there at games. And so uh, I don't think he's going anywhere as far as the Duke basketball program is concerned. Speaking with Ian O'Connor, uh, New York Post columnist, author of Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. Ian, I, I, I could probably, we could probably ask you a heck of a lot more about Coach K, but that seems like a perfect place to segue into another topic that's kind of on the same topic. Well, and it involves you saying something again. I, I, I saw it on social media a couple of days ago or just yesterday. Your thoughts on Tom Brady. You don't think he's staying retired for long either. This might be a very short pause for him. You don't think he's he's done. You think he's making a comeback in the NFL at some point soon. I do. And uh, listen, I had a conversation with Tom Brady about five years ago. And we were talking about him playing until age 47, 48. His wife had already signed off on 45. And really, when's the last time Tom Brady set a goal and didn't reach it? And and he was one of the two or three best players in the league this year at 44. So I, I, I think he fell out of love with the whole Bruce Arians way of coaching. It was entirely different from Bill Belichick, of course. And... So I I believe that has not – his break from Tampa Bay has not been fully detailed yet and probably will at some point, what what exactly happened there. But for him to play at such a high level at his age, wanting to go to at least 45 and beyond, and then suddenly pulling the plug, yeah, I I just think he needs a change. I think he will take a year off, and then when he comes back, he sort of created a new challenge for himself. And and these guys, whether it's Tiger Woods or or Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky or – or Tom Brady, the greats of the greats, they're always looking for new challenges. So when he comes back at age 46, people are going to say, well, Tom Brady can't win a championship after taking a year off at age 46 or 47. Well, guess what? I'm going to prove to you that I can do that. So I suspect he will be back. What I, I would be really surprised if he doesn't because he was playing at such a high level. He wasn't that far removed from going back to the Super Bowl Without a defensive breakdown there, he's one game away from it. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I would not – I would be surprised if he has played his last down of football. I should point out in his retirement announcement, you go back and look through that. I don't see the word retire or retirement in there. Mm-hmm. And he phrased it in creative ways. So I think he left himself some wiggle room to come back. Where, who does he come back with, Ian? Is, is he kind of – uh, taking stock this year as he sits out? I think that's, that's part of it, maybe. And, and I do think he needs uh, a break and, and time away with his family, certainly. But you look at San Francisco. Uh, Trey Lance could, could – that would be the franchise he would pick. They have a very good offensive coach running that team and somebody he respects. It's his hometown team. It's the team he grew up worshiping. Now, Trey Lance could 
could spoil that by having a very good first year as a starter, assuming Tom Brady does take this season off, which I think he will. Uh, to me, if, if San Francisco is not available to him, the, the Las Vegas Raiders make a whole lot of sense. Derek Carr is in the final year of his deal. I don't know if they extend him. Maybe they do. And Josh McDaniels is as close a coach to Tom Brady as anyone. He had a much better relationship with Josh McDaniels than he did with Bill Belichick in New England. So that's like his, they're like brothers. And so it depends on what happens with Derek Carr there, but that could be a very enticing opportunity for Brady to go in there with a coach who completely believes in him, who's in lockstep with him, to have a chance to win his eighth Super Bowl championship. Ian, we appreciate the time on the show today. Uh, thanks for joining us. And again, folks, make sure you check out the book, Coach K, The Rise and Reign of Mike Krzyzewski. Ian, all the best. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, there Ian. Is. Ian O'Connor, New York Post columnist and uh, author, three times on the New York Times bestsellers list. And again, the latest on Coach K. Some, uh, some great stories there. I'm always fascinated by books like that, Jonesy, where – Books were about known people that are in the spotlight, and yet new stories are uncovered, like stories you haven't heard. Yeah. That's that. That's impressive. That's that's great writing. That's great journalism. That's great research and uh, relationship building and trust and everything else. Because when you can get stories like that that have been held under wraps and suddenly they come out for the first time, that's that's solid. So even though I despise Duke, that's a book I'm going to have to put on my list. I'm going to have to check that yeah. out for sure. You, you got to respect what he's done, Eric. You, you really do. Um, yeah. And, and uh, the, pro, the program that he's built. And, I mean, let's face it, the, the Duke basketball program got to a point where he didn't need to recruit. The program recruited for itself. Right. And guys wanted to go there. Guys wanted to show up there. And he was like the – the Mariano Rivera, the closer, he just went into the kid's living room to talk to the parents, and he had his, I'm sure he had his pick of almost any kid he wanted because of what was built in that Duke program. So, yeah, you got to respect that, and, and you got to respect the success uh, at every level, right? So he's, he's not only done it at the, at the college ranks, but, you know, he's done it internationally. And people would say, well, why doesn't a guy like that go to the pros? It's, it's different. It's different. 82 games, you know, you can wear your heart on your sleeve and go after it for 30, 35 games a year. 82 games, can't do that. Need yeah. a different mindset. Well, you're right about that. And, uh, hey, anytime we talk about Coach K, we got to give a little shout-out to the Canadian Coach K as well. There's a couple of them. Mike Cates and Coach Konchalski as well. There's a couple of great Ks in this country. Uh, so shout-out to those and to all the great Canadian coaches in the collegiate and uh, university ranks as well. Uh, subscribe to Smith & Jones, folks, wherever you get your podcast, Please rate and review and share as well. Download the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We're going to be back on Thursday with another edition. Have a good one.